Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. You're not going to want to miss today's conversation. If you consider yourself an environmental, social, or governance investor, better known as ESG, or are simply looking to learn more about sustainable investing and shareholder engagement, today's conversation is a great one for you. I had on Gabe Risman, co-founder of Your Stake, an ESG screening tool, and we had a conversation about what tools are available to see the environmental and social impact of your investments, why shareholder engagement is really important, how companies can greenwash data and initiatives, as well as how to identify it, and then also be sure to listen to the end where Gabe shares a story about his grandma striking up conversations with total strangers in New York elevators. It's pretty entertaining and a good life lesson. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Gabe Risman. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Elliot. Glad to be here. Excellent. So why don't you kick things off with a brief introduction about yourself, what you're doing now, the company you helped co-found, and just walk us through that. Sure thing. So... I guess I started the journey that led me to now about 10 years ago. I was a student climate activist. My co-founder and I were actually leading the fossil fuel divestment campaign at Yale. And what that means is we were trying to push the university endowment to stop investing in fossil fuel companies. And at the same time, we were also working as students with the undergraduate socially responsible investment fund. And we were doing academic research on the best way to create impact in socially responsible investing and ESG investing. And what we found is that, uh, one, there's a huge potential for impact in this space. That's what gets me so excited about this is uh, there's such a track record already of companies that have changed as a result of ESG investing and just the world changing as a result. And, And now as we're getting close to a critical tipping point, Right, where more people are getting activated and realizing that they can align their investments with their values, man, it's it's pretty powerful. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about that more, what kind of impact this can have. But that got me really passionate and excited to start your stake. I my co-founder and I had backgrounds in data science. And what we saw was that in going through this research, in uh, working as activists and campaigners, there were major, major challenges that was holding back the scale needed to be able to create real change of ESG impact investing. And those three challenges that we found, the first one was personalization. So the lack of personalization, a lot of times sustainable investing was one size fits all. ESG was one size fits all. And if you disagreed with a particular uh, point with your ratings provider, then you're kind of stuck without a paddle and there's nothing you could really do. If you are passionate about climate change, um, but you also own a gun and this portfolio says that weapons are, uh, weapons are not good and it's bad, then that's something that will discourage you from ESG or 
if you're passionate about uh, gender equality and you're uh, you're going into a renewable energy fund and that's something that the renewable energy companies in your fund just happen to score poorly on gender diversity, which is an unfortunate reality right now, that's something that would turn a lot of people off and kind of keep them from expressing their values through sustainable investing. And the other two gigantic problems were a lack of explainability and a lack of personalization. So most of the space that we saw was, hey, here's your portfolio. It's an eight out of 10. Um, awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what does that mean? You could explain what it means, but you have to read this 80-page methodology document. And it's still pretty opaque and not really easy to understand what's going on. So uh, our goal was how do you translate that 8 out of 10 into something that's personalized, something that you can actually explain. So instead of an 8 out of 10, let's talk about how many fewer asthma attacks are in your portfolio, how many more homes are being powered by clean energy, and then something that's transparent too. And the reason why is there's a lot of, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about greenwashing a little later on, but there's a lot of distrust and a legitimate concern about what is ESG. And the big challenge is that a lot of times ESG is not transparent. And what we found to be crucial to be able to get more people on board and have it be more credible is having full transparency of every single thing that you're, uh, that you're working on and displaying. So uh, that is kind of my motivation for why I started your stake, because there's so much potential for impact um, that is within sustainable investing. And those three major challenges of personalization, explainability, and transparency were holding back a lot of people that were looking to invest in alignment with their values, but their financial advisor maybe wasn't bringing it up or they were getting turned off by, by several issues. Yeah. What, what changes have you seen over the past 10 years, Gabe? I feel like 10 years ago, this, it, it's sort of at the forefront, like it was sort of being discussed, but, mm-hmm. but not very much. And I feel like a lot of that has come sort of in the past few years. But what, what have you noticed being in the industry here, the major changes? And where, sort of second part of that question, where do you see things going from this point? I love that question. I'm going to go back even further. <laughs> I think the start of socially responsible investing was the 1600s when there were faith-based organizations that had uh, like pools of money and they would make sure that wherever it was going, the loans they were giving out were, were for good causes and in alignment with faith. And then the modern socially responsible investment movement started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where people would exclude tobacco, South African apartheid, companies linked to South African apartheid. A lot of it was based on negative exclusions. And that kind of carried forward another big part of socially responsible investing throughout its history has been... Hey, Gabe, can I jump in real yeah. quick? For those who are listening, how would you define negative exclusion? I want to make sure that we're we're defining things as we go along so people can track as much as yeah, possible because there's a lot of jargon in the industry. That's, yeah, thank you for calling me out and keep doing that. So negative exclusion is um, I don't want to invest in this because I, it doesn't align with my values. So tobacco is a great example. I don't want to invest in tobacco. I don't want to invest in fossil fuels. I don't want to invest in uh, alcohol or adult entertainment or whatever it might be. Uh, that is how socially responsible investing, ESG, we'll use a million terms, uh, really got its start. And that's what was available to begin with. And a lot of people still um, really like that approach. And that's a very popular approach to this day. Uh, but that used to be the only approach, really. Uh, about uh, around the same time, another thing that was happening was something called shareholder engagement. 
And shareholder engagement is when investors that own shares in a particular company uh, use their voice as investors, use their power to encourage the company to improve its social and environmental impact. And that has been happening for years. And that's another thing that has really, really accelerated in just the past couple of years. So that's that was the 60s. 10 years ago, it was still very negative exclusion oriented. And 10 years ago, the fossil fuel divestment movement got its start. And that, I think, catalyzed a gigantic revolution in sustainable investing and got uh, impact investing, sustainable investing on a lot of people's minds. And uh, a lot of sustainable investing started out as climate-oriented investing and then expanded to, hey, we can cover any issue based on that. Um, And ever since then, it's really exploded. Um, In the past three years, we've seen the most adoption, but uh, I think that in the last 10, that's really when things started picking up where ESG, sustainable investing, started to become part of the vernacular of fund managers. And then what happened from the last 10 years to the last three is that there was this perception of financial underperformance for quite a long time. And in the last three years, that that myth is being dispelled. Um, it's not very well accepted anymore that ESG will, will lead to financial underperformance. And a lot of people think, I would say more people probably think that it leads to outperformance financially. So it's gaining mainstream credibility as an actual investment strategy. There's more technology and tools and data available uh, for people to know what's actually going on. Uh, There are more approaches where in in addition to negative exclusions, now you can positively tilt your investments towards good companies. You can integrate ESG considerations throughout your portfolio. So instead of just avoiding tobacco companies, maybe you want to look at the most diverse companies across any sector. Uh, So there's a lot more approaches. There's a lot more uh, understanding of the financial performance, successful implications of ESG. And then there's just a lot more awareness of, hey, this is something you can do, technology to help implement it, and, uh, and, and passion from people that are getting activated, especially during COVID. A lot of people wanted to start aligning their purchasing decisions and their voting and their political activism and their daily lives and their investments with what they really care about. Yeah, I feel like that shareholder engagement piece of that, that has really, and the people that I've been talking to has really taken hold. Do you mind, I know this is sort of just off the top of your mind, but do you mind giving maybe an example of where that worked out or major changes? I know we've seen some cool ones in the past few years. Totally. I think the most popular one that was pretty famous was Engine Number 1, which was a fund manager that actually got three uh, directors elected to Exxon's board that had climate expertise that were going to help move it. There's a lot of examples of investors in the past couple of years pushing companies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions really successfully. Uh, companies, for, for people, I personally care a lot about animal welfare. Um, and shareholder engagement was really crucial in getting companies like McDonald's and then a lot of peers followed McDonald's afterwards to uh, start going with cage-free eggs and reduce the uh, uh, challenges there. And there's a lot of success going on with shareholder engagement in getting companies to add women to their board of directors and, and improve their diversity policies. Um, I could really go on and on. And, and people sometimes find this incredible, uh, not just incredible, this is awesome, but incredible. Like, can I really believe this? Like, is this real? <laughs> that kind of incredible. Uh, but 
the the track record is amazing and the reason why it works you don't even need to have uh like uh, that high of an ownership percentage in the company this is something that works even for small shareholders that are able to make a solid case that this is something that their shareholder base cares about and push the company to change companies really have a, a, a strong track record of doing that i think uh, there were some studies that showed between a 20 and 70 percent success rate where an investor asks a company to improve their social and environmental impact depending on the issue they're actually getting companies to make commitments and real changes to improve their impact and that is something that historically has been kind of overlooked and not a big thing that people focus on but more and more people are realizing that hey you know it's not just what i invest in it's what I'm doing with this power that the investment gives me that is really meaningful. And I'm so excited when you ask where things are going, I think things are going in two directions. I think things are going towards more personalization uh, because that's one thing that I've learned. Everyone has different values. No one means the same thing when they say sustainable investing. It's completely different. There's, it's not even necessarily bifurcated along political lines. Like people with very similar political beliefs have totally different values. Even Anyway, that's number one is personalization. And number two, shareholder engagement, I think, is going to keep growing. And uh, people are going to demand more of their fund managers. And people are going to demand more of their companies to actually improve and, uh, and be more active and, and use their voice. So I, I want to talk more about personalization, but I want to go back for a second, Gabe. Sure. And the idea of shareholder engagement, if... You know, I'm an individual investor listening to this. I'm not an engine number one. I don't have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars at stake here. Mm -hmm. What what can I do as an individual investor to have better shareholder engagement? How how can I affect change? Yeah, that's a perfect question. Um, my own personal theory of change is that if you're an individual investor, there's this really simple thing that you can do, which is invest in mutual funds that have fund managers that are doing shareholder engagement. Then your asset, they have more assets in support of what they're doing. You are uh, encouraging the shareholder engagement activity. That's a really easy solution. Um, how? So I want to I want to interrupt yeah. real quick. How how do I know that a mutual fund manager is doing shareholder engagement? Like how would I even figure that out? That is so hard right now for a lot of individuals. Okay. Um, a lot of times, it takes a lot of deep research because greenwashing is a major problem. Greenwashing is when a company or a fund's marketing outpaces its actual practices. And a lot of times what fund managers will say is we have this fantastic stewardship policy and we are talking to all of our companies about ESG issues. Um, and there's just such a disparity in terms of the uh, commitment to those issues among fund managers and how much they're pushing companies to change versus just maybe having those dialogues or how much do they prioritize those issues versus really talking about financial performance and oh by the way this is a nice thing it's hard it's very hard for individuals to be able to cut through that noise and in some sense it takes industry knowledge uh, now there are a couple reports that have come out share action uh, produced a report um there's a project that I was involved with a few years back called Real Impact Tracker that released this information. Um, and a useful, 
I, I want to use the word proxy, but that has many meanings. A useful um, guide is looking at how a, a fund's voting record, how is it voting when it has the chance to vote in support of climate or diversity or whatever shareholder resolutions. And there are a couple of reports. One that is done by an organization called Ceres that looks at how fund managers are voting in support of climate issues. Uh, and there's another one done by the Center for Political Accountability. Uh, but it, that is one of the big challenges that uh, a lot of times financial advisors have this industry knowledge that they can really help individuals to understand which of their fund managers are more legit and real and credible in their shareholder engagement activities. Okay, great. Um, so other than sort of doing the research on mutual fund managers, mm -hmm. investing with mutual fund managers who do shareholder engagement, are there other things that individual investors can do? Yes, and that's that's my favorite thing. Ask and talk about it and, and be vocal. If you have a financial advisor, ask them about shareholder engagement. And if they don't know what it means, then that's not acceptable. And they have to look into this and they have to be able to tell you what's going on and uh, encourage your friends to ask. And I have called up <laughs> my fund managers on quite a few occasions and uh, it's fun. And they say, wow, I love that you're asking about this because we, we do the shareholder engagement stuff and we don't know that people care or we could do more. Uh, like, Yes, you are not going to, as one voice, make Exxon Mobil a wind energy company. But with your one voice, you can uh, bring an issue up to your financial advisor. And your financial advisor represents the voices of maybe 100 people. And then can bring the voices of 100 people to the fund managers that they have deep relationships with. And the fund manager maybe represents billions of dollars of assets. And that fund manager can talk to Exxon. And right. So working up the chain is something that is very real. And the only reason why we hear this all the time, the reason why fund managers are pushing companies to change is because they're hearing it from their clients. The reason why financial advisors are talking to their fund managers, they're hearing it from their clients. So you just got to help uh, push your voice up the chain. And if you have friends, get them to do it too. I've noticed that there's more and more people asking about this and then it keeps getting pushed further and further up. And unfortunately you get some greenwashing, but you do get some progress along the way as well. Mm -hmm. um, I want to head back to the personalization side of this. Sure. You know, we've talked a little bit about how you can personalize your values within that. What, what other sort of things are you seeing as we go forward that people will want to personalize? And are, are there some pitfalls to getting too personalized? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there are several things that people want to personalize. Uh, there's the classic stuff like just figuring out your risk preferences. Do you want to invest more in bonds or in equities? That's a, a classic personalization. On the ESG side, uh, there's a question of how much do you care about ESG? How much do you want to focus on that? And do you want to invest and focus on ESG through public markets or do you want to maybe uh, contribute to a community development bank or do you want to contribute to a private <laughs> there's now crowdfunding solar installations or things like that but I think the core of this personalization is my main 401k or whatever invest in the stock market how do I personalize that and that I think the first thing is just figuring out what people really care about uh, and we've just seen so many examples of people that are so passionate about forced labor, uh, but they don't care about the environment. Uh, and other people that are 
all in on racial justice and gender equality. Uh, but what doesn't matter to them is weapons exposure uh, or tobacco because they may smoke cigarettes and own a gun. Uh, people have just very different preferences and, and don't like who likes when you make assumptions about them, uh, especially when they're wrong. So that's why things are moving, especially because now there are more tools to accommodate personalized ESG investing. There's just going to be more uh, questions to make sure that people can, or whoever your investment product provider is, they should actually be serving your needs. The pitfalls, oh man, there of course there are pitfalls. There are pitfalls to everything. Everything's a trade-off. I was mentioning before this renewable energy thing. It just is an empirical fact right now that renewable energy companies have poor board diversity. And if you care about renewable energy and you care about gender equality, I mean, there are definitely ways to get around that, and especially if you're building a diversified portfolio. But um, it, if there were a perfect person, then there could be a perfect company, and then there could be a perfect fund, and then there could be a perfect portfolio. But there, there's not, and there's always going to be issues. And when there's so much ability to personalize and people say they want it all, sometimes that just doesn't work. I, I want to explore that a little bit more, Gabe, because that's something I've personally struggled with is when we define ESG, environmental, social governance, you know, you can lean differently on each of those letters and it, it's it's tough to have your cake and eat it too when it comes to this. How, I guess, what what other sort of contrasting ideas do you often see? So you gave the example of on solar or wind or sustainable energy, their board diversity is really poor. Mm -hmm. Do you see other things where it's tough to have your cake and eat it too? Like what sort of ideas should people be thinking about when they go research this and think, hey, I find both of those topics really important, yep. but you know, what am I supposed to do? Do you have other examples like that? Yeah, one of the, one of the best examples is someone that is anti-animal testing, but uh, likes vaccines. <laughs> Almost every mm -hmm. pharmaceutical company is doing animal testing in some way, shape or form. And that can lead to a lot of conflict as uh, someone that's passionate about animal welfare, but likes pharmaceutical companies for their positive impact on human health. Uh, that's that's the first thing that came to mind. That's a very popular, common one. What, so when you, when you talk to those people, what do they end up doing? Because one of the other questions I get oftentimes is like, am I normal here? Or what, what, is, what does the average person do? And, you know, it's always tough to say what the average person does and everything's personalized. And, you know, it really comes down to what's important to you. But for those out there thinking, hey, what do those people do? Yeah. What do they do? <laughs> it's exactly, exactly <laughs> what you said. There's no, there's no average person. Um, I think the best thing that can be done is, well, there, there are two things that can be done. The first thing is um, going all in on the transparency. You care about these two things. Here's where they're in conflict. You have to make a choice uh, and, mm -hmm. and requiring that choice. And then the second thing that can be done is trying to extract away from that choice as much as possible. You care about animal testing and pharmaceuticals. We'll find the best pharmaceutical companies that are doing the least amount of animal testing. Or we will have pharmaceuticals in the portfolio, but the rest of the portfolio will be really positive on animal welfare. So um, if you want to be totally pure, you have to make a choice. If you want to do the best you can, then there's a lot of ways to do the best you can. Okay. That's, that's helpful. I, I think a lot of people struggle with that decision, myself included, and explaining it to clients is that you know, we're, we're making strides, it's getting better, but there's not that perfect portfolio and there never will be, but mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can at least customize it more to what you're valuing at the moment.
Yeah. Do you have any stories of, of when that worked or didn't work? You know, I think, I think it's just being upfront with folks and that like, here's where we are today. Here's what used to exist. As you said, like, here's a sustainable fund or, you know, there were some social funds back in the day and being in the Northwest, a lot of times um, abortion rights, women's health care comes up. And, yeah. you know, when you think social, that, yes, it fits the definition of social in that strict sense. But for a lot of people in the Northwest, it, it doesn't. They want to support women's health care and those sort of topics. Um, and so those funds were in severe conflict with their just existence um (laughs) and so it's you can get it now where you have some other ones where maybe it's more green leaning and more sustainable and it's not focusing as much on the social issues or you can even go a little bit further and just target some sort of wind or renewable energy etf to get more exposure there so i find that there's more options today in talking through that but it you know it was tough five eight years ago there wasn't there weren't a lot of options yeah so I'm curious, you know, 10 years ago, you've been on this path to launch your stake. What, what has that been like? And I know, at least in my reading, you set it up to be, I think, a public benefit corporation. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion and what, what that means for people who've never heard about it. Sure. Yeah, this will get philosophical. I I love that. Um, Initially, your stake was a research paper. It was, how can people create the most impact? And we didn't know we wanted to start a business. And then it was uh, it was likely going to be a nonprofit. We thought that we would be able to produce a public good and get information out there. Um, my co-founder actually studied a lot. He studied economics and was very into economics and social good. And he made the case that it would be a stronger idea to do a public benefit corporation and still have profit as our mission because then our main stakeholder is our customer. Whereas if we're a nonprofit, our main stakeholder is a foundation. And when the main stakeholder is the customer, that's something that can allow for a lot more scale because you're making sure you're doing something that people want and it's it's much more sustainable uh, in its nature compared to something that a foundation maybe wants today, but maybe doesn't want tomorrow and who knows what's going on. So we decided to be a public benefit corporation because Uh, We're still a for-profit organization, and that means that we're held accountable by our customers and need to be doing something that's actually useful to people instead of just the whims of foundation. But the public benefit side of that is we also have a legal charter to our social purpose mission, Uh, and that's something that's extremely important to us and, and what guides us through everything that we do. And what's the gist of that charter? Sure. The gist of the charter is... uh, essentially to provide information on social and environmental uh, metrics and factors to investors. Okay, great. And is your stake available to non-financial advisors? Right now, it's only available to financial advisors and asset managers, essentially investment professionals. Um, We found, we actually started out, (laughs) it's funny, our our first iteration was a consumer-focused petition website. Uh Um, focused around shareholder engagement. You're an individual. You want to push your company to be more diverse. You want to push your company to pay its workers more. Start a petition as a share owner, as a shareholder, as an investor. Um, And what we realized is that most people, and this is kind of changing now with a lot of the investing apps, but when we got started, 
most people want their financial advisor to take care of this for them. And they want to express their values to their financial advisor. And they want to say, this is what really matters to me. But most people want their advisor who, who many people don't have time to do all this research because it's a full-time job to be able to understand everything that you need to understand. So a lot of times people are trusting their advisor to understand, take in their preferences and then execute on that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And what, you know, the tool that you have today, I've tested it. I could see that it screens a lot of different things. What, what do you see people screening the most at the moment? Yeah. Number one is fossil fuel exposure. Uh, That is the number one thing that people want to be fossil fuel free. Um, It's, I think, uh, almost two times more than any other metric. That's the one that people are looking to screen on, which is, it, it kind of shocked me, even though that was my background. Um, so that's number one. And then a lot of other popular ones are things like bribery and fraud violations, women on boards, uh, some other environmental metrics as well. But that's, that is the number one most popular one. Okay. And I know you and I had this conversation prior, but just for the podcast here, how do you pull this data? Because I know that's been an issue in the greater sustainable investing movement. Yeah. Of, is it is it the company rating themselves? Are they supplying the data? Is it public organizations? Can you just talk about one, how your stake is pulling the data, but then also two, some of the common issues in the industry that people may not be aware of? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll start with the, with the second one, the motivation of the issues. I mentioned greenwashing before. Greenwashing is something that your fund manager can do. It's also something that companies do all the time. It's wild, actually. I, if you read through the sustainability reports of petrochemicals companies, all you see is circular economy, circular economy, circular economy, and their their initiatives to uh, do a pilot project, and that that's really all there is. Uh, and a lot of times that's really not representative of, of their main revenue base and where their actual <laughs> focus is. It's just like a nice little project. I can know that a company has really bad diversity when they don't disclose their diversity numbers, but instead they disclose the diversity of their new hires or they disclose whatever. The, everyone is going to paint a picture that makes them look good. So company sustainability reporting their metrics, a lot of times they have the same name as other companies, but they're reported in different ways. And it makes it not apples to apples to compare companies to each other on the data that they report themselves. Now, what's really exciting is that the government is going to start mandating more and more of these disclosures. So there will be a consistent methodology. But for now, what we do is we rely on uh, two types of data. The first is third parties. So that's NGOs, academic sources applying a consistent methodology to evaluate companies and, and produce data on them. And then the second is mandatory company reporting. So not a company's sustainability report, but it's annual report filed with the SEC that they can be sued if they do something wrong. Uh, or uh, they're reporting to government agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or whatever else it might be. So we are pulling data from publicly available sources that are not disclosed by the company or not voluntarily disclosed by the company. Sorry. <laughs> that makes sense. And so if I'm an individual investor out there and I want to do some research on my own, mm-hmm. what's the best way to do that to make sure that I'm not falling victim to whatever the company's self-reporting or even large organizations that are reporting information, but 
that data is taken sort of in light of the company and their profit, not necessarily an individual investor and what they're valuing. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think there are two really good publicly available tools. The first one is As You So. Uh, and As You So has several screening tools where you can see if your fund is fossil fuel free or deforestation free or whatever else it might be. Um, and then the other thing is something that I mentioned before, not really a tool, but just Google proxy voting records of your fund managers uh, and proxy voting. It's just when a, when a fund manager votes on social and environmental issues, it's called a proxy vote. And you, you often, I mean, a lot of individuals get proxy votes in the mail and that's why they're familiar with them. Cause if you own any companies directly, you'll see that. But fund managers have, uh, full teams dedicated to this and they, they have really legit policies. So seeing is my fund manager uh, on the top of the list? Are they supporting social and environmental issues or are they not? That's that. And as you saw, are probably the two best things that I would recommend off the bat. But Elliot, you may know other things that I'm not aware of as well. As you so is an excellent tool. I mean, that's where I went to go look at some data in addition to your stake as well to do some research and, um, it, it, it graphically does it really well. And then also by the numbers, I just felt like they did, they present the data in a really easy to understand manner, um, for folks. I do, I want to go back just for a second, the proxy voting for those listening, proxy voting, you get these really thick packets in the mail typically, or I guess via email now a lot of times. And I just, I want to highlight what Gabe was talking about earlier and that those are really important to vote. That's the idea of shareholder engagement is it's actually taking the time to read those, be informed of what's happening and taking a proactive approach as opposed to just recycling them or ignoring the email. I'm glad you said recycling and not throwing in the trash. That's <laughs> That's step one. <laughs> step one, recycle, don't <laughs> trash it. Yep. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you if there are any sort of popular misconceptions about ESG. We talked about it earlier a little bit with performance being less. Um, that hasn't necessarily come through as much that we've seen in the past few years. I think it's sort of a wild card and will be for a long time and be ever evolving. But are there other misconceptions or myths about that that maybe existed in the past but are proving, at least at the moment, not to be true? Yes. The financial performance, there's definitely a misconception we already touched on this, that ESG means one thing uh, that's not personalized. Mm. Uh, a lot of times, actually, faith-based investors get turned off by values alignment or by sustainable investing. They think it's not for them, but that that's a, a large component of ESG. Actually, the um, uh, a lot of faith-based organizations were some of the main pioneers and leaders in socially responsible investing and shareholder engagement. A lot of uh, like sisters and the Dominican church and uh, faith-based organizations have pushed companies to make major climate improvements and done really good work. And a lot of times the faith-based community does not feel necessarily welcomed by ESG, but I think that's just a problem of things being politicized when they don't need to be. Um, and sometimes it goes the other way too. But I, I think those are probably the two biggest misconceptions that, that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. And then what would success look like for you, your business, ESG investing, any or all of those in the future? I mean, where do you hope to see the industry go? We've talked about sort of where you think it will go, but in a perfect world, what does Gabe want to see? Sure. Oh, man. Tough question. 
It's, um, I think the biggest, there are two main things. The first is for people to have the information that they deserve when making investment decisions. Um, there are many times when people want to invest in a certain way and are unable to because of a lack of information. So transparent data and tools to do something with it. You can have all the data in the world, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't do anything with it. That's really what we're focused on now. And if we just expand our existing product, we will be helping to solve that challenge. And the second thing is people being as active with their shareholder votes as they are with their political more active with their shareholder votes than they are with their political votes or active on both because, man, that's something that uh, corporations have touched every aspect of our lives and there is just so much that they're able to do to improve lives uh, and and they can be pushed to do that by their shareholder base. So uh, that's what I would love to see. Okay, great. And... I'm curious, when you talk about data, I feel like data sources, particularly in today's world, is a, let's call it touchy topic. Would you want to see some sort of government solution, private solution? How, I mean, because right now you're scraping data, companies are scraping data. What what does an ideal world look like and who's putting this data together? Yeah, I, I think it has to be a combination of sources. I think the government needs to set the baseline of the standard, really important data points that matter the most. I think nonprofits will always be innovating and will always be coming up with new data points to find and new theses and new hypotheses and new research. Um, Same with academics. And I think it has to be a little bit of everything because the government is never going to be able to move fast enough where there's a new issue that that comes up. AI ethics, for example, nonprofits are able Mm. to come up with a framework for what companies should be doing on AI ethics and scoring companies on AI ethics faster than the government can come up with the mandatory reporting framework, right? So I think the the longstanding issues that people really need to see should be government. And I think there's always going to be a large role for nonprofits and academic sources to fill in a lot of the gaps and frontier issues. Great. I know that's a tough question, so I appreciate you tackling it. Sure. So I have a question that I like to end on, Gabe, but before we go there, is there anything else in the ESG universe or anything else you want to make sure we talk about today? I I love your last question. Let's get to that one. That'll be fun. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. So I like to end with the question of what is one act of kindness that's been transformational in your life? Yeah. Uh, And I'm glad you phrased it like that because I think in the email it was one act of kindness that someone performed to you. Uh, but the act of kindness that was most transformational was not something that someone did for me. It's, it's my grandma. Um, I lived with my grandma for a couple of years right out, of, right out of college and spent a lot of time with her growing up. And we would be in an elevator and everyone would be on their phones and standing in the corner and she would walk in with the brightest smile and say, hi, what, how's your day been going? What have you been? And it's not just like, hey, how are you? How are you? And then we're done. She would engage everyone, like treat everyone as a human, uh, treat everyone mm-hmm. as a real person that has a story, uh, no matter how long she interacted with them. And, and uh, especially living in New York where that doesn't happen <laughs> all the time, just being there next to her as she did that uh, and seeing her being kind to all these people. She was not an extrovert. She was a natural introvert, but she 
she liked being heard and she knew people liked being heard. So she, she did it. And that inspires me every, every day. I bet that cheered up many people. Yeah. Is that something that you do today at all? I try to as much as I can. Yeah. I, I don't have the talents, but I'm, uh, I'm getting there and I think about it a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, it's, uh, there's a quote. I don't really like Kant too much as a philosopher in general, but I really like his quote, treat people not as the means to an end, but as ends in and of themselves. So if you treat people not to get something out of them, but they're a person and they're, they're their own value. And uh, that is that is something that I think I try to live as much as I can every single day as well. Great. Sounds like she really embodied that as well. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Of course. Well, I appreciate you being on the podcast today, Gabe. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation and I learned some stuff myself. Amazing. Thanks so much, Elliot. And I really love this. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.